0: Hello and welcome to a History of Alexander the Great Remastered. Episode 18, Endgame. Gedrosia, in Alexander's day, spanned from the mouth of the Indus to the Straits of Hormuz. Any of you familiar with this area of the globe will know it is a desert. One great big desert. There is hardly any water. There is hardly any food. It was very hot, and travel had to be done at night. This was not a place you wanted to lead an army. This is why, in fact, before Alexander's day, no army had crossed the Gedrosian Desert. Alexander wanted to be the first to lead an army across. Why? Because it was there. His men trudged their way through the worst of the desert, sending a party to the coast to see what could be of use to the fleet. They found little. After they found an area with some supplies, Alexander sent it officially sealed to the coast for the fleet. But the men risked incurring Alexander's wrath and ate it. Their current predicament of greater concern to them than Alexander's anger. Alexander did pardon them, though. ...upon realising how desperate they were. Alexander did make it through the desert. He took the Gadrosian capital... ...and then moved into Carmania... ...where he reunited with Craterus. Alexander was the first to safely lead an army... ...across the Gadrosian desert. It was said that Cyrus had crossed it... ...and only seven of his men survived. It was said Cyrus had intended to invade India but was forced back by the desert. Alexander had beaten him. But this glory hides the disaster that the journey was. The 60-day march was a disaster that should not have happened. There were many casualties among both man and animal. They got caught in the sand, which was deep and burning. There was barely any water, and they had no idea where the little water that existed was. Sometimes they would march through the night and find water in the morning which was good, but other times there would not be water. They would be forced to continue in the baking heat, exhausted. The men were forced to kill the transport animals for food, something Alexander turned a blind eye to. But once they had done that, there was the problem of transporting their equipment, which was made harder by the wagons continually breaking. The army had to keep moving. Those who could not stand the pace due to dehydration, exhaustion, or sunstroke were left behind to die. No one helped. No one could help. The army had to survive. When they found water, things were no better. Men flung themselves at it, drinking as much as they could, drinking fatal levels, forcing Alexander to stop a few miles from the water to control his men. Another time, they found a stream, only to be hit by a flash flood from rains upstream. The camp followers, women, children, and the royal tent were all swept away. Only the troops survived with their weapons, sometimes not even those. Alexander suffered as the men did. He too marched on foot with them, encouraging them. There is a report that he turned down water as there was only enough for him to drink, but this may not be true as I reported a similar anecdote that took place in Central Asia. I think it's quite unlikely that it happened twice. It may just have happened once, but I'm unsure on which journey. It is, though, equally possible that it is just a piece of fiction. The going was rough. Sometimes they got lost, their guides unfamiliar with travelling by the stars, and they had to find the coast at least once to give them an idea of where they were. So, what was the cost? We are unsure, but using Nearchus' statement... That Alexander had 120,000 fighting men at the start of his voyage down the Hydaspes. Modern estimates are that anything from 8,000 to 70,000 troops died on this march. Having reunited with Nearchus, Alexander ordered Hephaestion to march into Persia down the coastal route with the elephants and baggage train. It was December of 325 BC, and was thus called better to take the slower moving troops down the warmer route, where there were more supplies. And we all know not to take elephants through mountains in the winter, don't we Hannibal? Alexander, meanwhile, would take the most mobile of the infantry, the companions, and some archers, to Parsegadae, the old Persian capital of Cyrus the Great. At this city was the tomb of Cyrus the Great, one of the greatest monarchs in world history. However, the tomb was not doing as well as the memory of Cyrus was. It had been broken into and robbed. Everything other than the divan and the coffin had been taken, and the coffin was in pieces around the tomb. In short, it was a sorry sight, and Alexander was not pleased. Alexander ordered that it be repaired, the coffin be rebuilt, and what was left of the body placed inside it. All the original furnishings were to be recreated, while the door into the tomb was built in stone and covered with plaster, on which would be set the royal seal. This was only part of Alexander's actions. The Magi who guarded the tomb were arrested and tortured as Alexander tried to find out who had raided the tomb. This proved useless, as the Magi refused to speak. Now, here is the million-pound question. Are these the actions of a man showing respect towards another culture he was trying to link to his own, or the actions of a man who was increasingly mentally unstable? Alexander was a man interested in philosophy, You'll remember this from earlier in the podcast, when I spoke about Alexander's meeting with Diogenes of Sinope. Just as Alexander was demeaned by Diogenes, so too would the Indian sages not approve of his pursuit of glory. When Alexander met them with his army, they stamped their feet. This greatly confused Alexander, and he asked just what were they doing? They told him that a man could only possess whatever land he was standing on. So why was he always so busy and up to no good so far away from home? Soon enough, he would be dead, and all the land he would own would be enough to bury him. Alexander fully approved of this. He didn't listen to it, though. Or did he? There is another account of Alexander being told to stop meddling so far away from home, when he met Calanus. Calanus threw a shrunken piece of animal hide on the ground, and walked all along the perimeter. The place where Calanus stood would be flat, but it would stick up in other places. Finally, Calanus stood in the centre of the hide, and the whole thing remained flat. The meaning was not lost on Alexander. Were he to remain on the fringes of his empire, there would be trouble in other places. So he should concentrate his authority on the centre. These anecdotes may have played a small part in sending Alexander back to the heart of his empire, Mesopotamia. But I suspect his troops' refusal to march any further may have had a little bit more to do with it. Nonetheless... Alexander was very impressed by these sages, or, as we know them, Brahmins, to such an extent that, in Taxila, he wished to take one back from India with him, Dandamis. The leader of the group declined to go himself, and forbade any of his pupils to go. He told Alexander that he had enough to live on. He had no desire for anything that Alexander could offer him, Alexander was convinced that Dandamis truly was a free man, and so would not force him. However, another man did join him, the previously mentioned Calanus. Calanus was greatly criticised for the decision, as he chose to serve another master other than God. And so Calanus joined the expedition. He travelled to Persia with Alexander, but then his health declined he had always been a healthy man in India, but in Persia, he lost all of his strength. Calanus said that he was prepared to die, as this was more preferable than changing his ways. Unable to talk him out of it, Alexander prepared a magnificent funeral pyre for Calanus. There was to be a procession to the prior, but Calanus was unable to walk, so a horse was provided, but he was unable to mount it, so he was carried in a litter. He was wreathed with garlands, and traditional Indian songs were sung. He mounted the pyre and laid himself down. He did not give any sign of shrinking from the flames. There was a salute to him once the fire was kindled. When the troops gave a battle cry, the elephants joined in. There is another tradition that Calanus refused to say goodbye to Alexander, as he would see him in Babylon shortly. You may have noticed the hints of a darker tone to the stories. This is an effective technique used by the sources to let you know that things will soon be coming to an end. It is unlikely there were so many omens pointing to Alexander's death, if any. But I'm going to leave them in, as it makes the story much better. Now speaking of a darker tone, let's cover Alexander's reign of terror. So what do I mean by Alexander's reign of terror? At the beginning of the winter of 225 224 BC, there were 22 functioning satraps. By the end of the winter, only five were unaffected. Four died of unknown reasons. Five were summoned to Alexander's court, and eight were deposed. Six of these were killed. Now, let's look at the obvious question. What on earth was going on? According to Paul Cartledge, there are two explanations. That Alexander did have a reign of terror, or that this was reform. I'll look at the latter first. There were explanations for all the depositions of the satraps. That they had abused their officers, not expecting Alexander to ever come back, ...from the far side of the Indus... ...or through his journey of the Gedrosian Desert. But Alexander was here now, and he was not impressed. You'll recall that Alexander was very trusting of his friends early on. He had been so unwilling to execute Philotas, But he had changed. He was more willing to believe the bad things about them... ...and so they were deposed, or summoned to his court... Or killed. And there is the fact that only eight satraps were deposed. Is that really a reign of terror? Then there is the second explanation. That those were excuses covering a real reign of terror. Many of those removed from office were Iranians, and Macedonians were put into place, who would owe their position to Alexander and would be loyal. Some even wonder whether this was Alexander getting the anger from the mutiny at the Hyphasis and the disaster of crossing the Gadrosian Desert out of his system. I'm not going to act like I know which of these views is right, but there is something that historians must not forget. History is not black and white. It is perfectly acceptable to think what really happened was somewhere in between the two extremes, and that Alexander wanted to secure the loyalty of the satraps, but really did care about his subjects and their suffering. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please visit us online, com. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash... The History of Pod. Subscribe on YouTube. YouTube.com forward slash The History of Podcast. And feel free to send me an email. podcast at gmail.com There will be no episode next Wednesday, as I shall be spending my afternoon in the Roman ruins of Ribchester. But I'll see you in two weeks, when we cover the mutiny of Opus...